Let's take our Bibles and join me in John chapter 20 so we can learn a little bit more on how to make sure that Jesus is seen in us. John chapter 20. If you need sermon notes, they're in the bulletin. If not, the ushers have some. They're moving around the auditorium. Just raise your hand, then they'll hand that to you. We're in John chapter 20. I want to read a portion of Scripture. Then we're going to jump over to Luke chapter 24 and read some more there. It's a si- title this morning is following up a little bit on what we talked about last week with Easter, and that is looking up when you're feeling really low. There's a story that's gone in college football history about a team that had to be really, really low. It was the NCAA football game that was done in, eight, in 1916 between Georgia Tech and Cumberland. You can see the score, but let me, uh, let me point out that's only the first quarter. The rest of the quarters went like this. It was a record-setting game. It ended up 222 to 0. The team that was being played was Georgia Track Tech, who was being uh, led by John Heisman of the Heisman fame, and uh, Cumberland. Cumberland had disbanded their football team the year before, so they had no real football team. But they had contracted three or four years earlier to play in Georgia at Georgia Tech, and so Georgia Tech Heisman gave them the option: you either pay us three thousand dollars in penalties for breaking the contract, or you put twelve men or eleven men out on the field, and we'll give you five hundred dollars for playing. So, with that offer in mind, they had eleven men or a few more volunteer to come and play the game. The game goes down as a real legitimate. NCAA game. It's got all those records that we've pointed out. In the course of the game, the one team, every time they had it, they scored a touchdown, never threw a pass at all. It was a running game. The other team had 15 turnovers, plus everything went wrong. In fact, there was one play in the third quarter that when the quarterback got the ball, he turned around to hand it off to the running back. The running back stopped. The quarterback dropped the ball. The other opponents that have been beating him up are coming in, charging in, and he said to the running back, pick up the ball, and the guy said, you pick it up, you dropped it. That's how bad this game was going. That nobody wanted to touch the ball anymore. Have you ever had moments like that where you don't want to pick up the ball? That everything is just kind of going wrong. That's the way the disciples felt. If we put them, put our shoes in, in our feet in their sandals, come that Sunday. Let's take it we're about Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. And here we are, the disciples are with Christ, and they're there, they're, they're discouraged. They have good reason to be discouraged. Jesus is dead. Jesus has been the one that they've been following for the last two and a half years. And now he's dead. And over the last couple of days, he said he was going to come back. Nothing's changed. He's still dead. Nothing's being, being done at all. And then they remembered the words that Jesus had said that last night when he was eating with them. He said, whatever they do to me, they're going to do to you too. Well, that had to be discouraging. And then on top of that, there's reports going through town now that somebody stole his body. That, that, by the way, that, that's really serious stuff. To all of a sudden, you've got the, the corpse of a loved one being desecrated, being stolen. That would be discouraged. And then the rumor on top of it, you know, some of your own friends said the body's disappeared. The rumor is that you guys took the body, that you're responsible for taking it. Now you're going to be arrested not only because you've been preaching, but because now you're a grave robber. And then on top of it, they hear of other dead people coming into the city. Remember this in Matthew 27? that all of a sudden there's that great earthquake when Jesus died and then on resurrection day other people are coming into the city, saints who have died and who have come back. I don't know how many there are. I don't know where they went. I'm only surmising that if they are going to give testimony and give evidence, these people who have died, who have come back from the dead and uh, they are seeking out somebody, I would think they would seek out the disciples. 
So if you have dead people seeking after you, that would give you the heebie-jeebies on top of it. And then you read in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus enters into the room and remember their response? They thought they saw a ghost. Now friend, if a ghost shows up, most of us are going to be terrified. Because most of us are thinking, if there's a ghost, it's not bringing me good news, it's coming after me. Especially after I've denied him. I've disappointed him. And now his ghost is coming into the room to get me? Oh, it is just an absolutely horrible moment. Then we read what happens. I'm going to read the two different passages. I want you to join with me in John chapter 20. And let's catch part of this story. Then in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the middle of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands, his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Flip back to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, the last few verses, records the same but gives us more information. Luke chapter 24, the last half of the chapter, starting with verse 36. Luke 24, 36. And as they, as they thus spake, the disciples, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit or a ghost. He said unto them, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands, my feet, that it is I myself, I and handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now that conversation, it ends up, if you read the next couple of verses, they are transformed. They are changed. These guys are transformed. Something that happens in this conversation, the words of Jesus all of a sudden just change these guys from being paralyzed by fear where they're saying, you pick up the ball, all of a sudden they're ready to grab it and to run and to break through the enemy lines. What is it that Jesus says? What is it that's in this text that all of a sudden gives them hope in the middle of a difficult moment? Now some of you are facing difficult moments. Some of you are going to have some of them in the next weeks, the months ahead. What is it that Jesus says to these men that you can remember, you can hang on to that will help you to handle the difficulties of disease, death, financial problems, some, some tragedy that, that could afflict you, a car accident? All of a sudden, some onslaught of attacks by others, co-workers or neighbors, or loss of job. Or all of a sudden, your plans and your hopes for your college, all of a sudden, they, they just bomb out, or somebody breaks up with you. You have one of those crises in your life. What is there in this text that the disciples receive from Jesus that we can hang on to? 
that can make a life-changing difference. There are several thoughts that if we condense it, I think these are truisms that are taken from the words of Jesus Christ. The first truism is this, that God or Jesus is never defeated in any way. That he is never all of a sudden, you know, put off the throne no matter how bad things look. No matter how bad the circumstances are. Jesus' words to his disciples prove this point. They think the world has ended. Their world has ended. They think that they are in big, big trouble and there is no way out. So they're huddling in this upper room. Jesus comes walking in and he starts speaking to them. One of the first words he says is, it's me. It is me, myself. Now this is an important thought. What this says to you and me is this. It says that Jesus is basically declaring, I'm alive. I, I, things haven't changed with me. Just because it got so bad on the cross, I'm alive. I'm here. I, I'm, I'm not a ghost. You can see my hands. You can, you can touch me. I pick up food. I eat the food. I'm not a spirit. It's really me. I am not defeated. I am not put out of power. I am not some angel or some spirit. I am not some substitute. It's me. It's really me. No matter how bad you think it is, I am here. And, and they're doubting whether it's him because the door was shut and he came through the door as a people with real physical qualities. By the way, resurrection body of Jesus different than, than what we're used to, where it could go through different elements. And they are, they're struck, they're dumbfounded, but he is reassuring them, I am not defeated, I am alive. Watch something else he says that's in the same text. That he says, not only am I, not, am I alive, my death was by design. You thought this was a terrible thing. You thought that this was awful. You thought that I lost control. That Judas and the, and the Romans and everybody else, they, they defeated me. That's not true. Everything that happened to me these last few days, the arrest, the beating, all that's gone on, the rejection, it was by design. I had a plan. In fact, he reminds them that everything that has been happening is because it's been predicted. It has been foretold in scriptures. He takes them back to the word of God. He reminds them on a couple of different cases. So look at verse 44. He says, this is what was being fulfilled. Look at down in verse 46. This is what was written. His point is, everything that is taking place is by design. I am still not defeated. I am rather one who has defeated the enemies. It's all been planned out. It has all been worked out for centuries. Let me add on to that another thought that goes right along with it. He's not defeated. He's alive. He's not defeated. This is all by design. No matter how bad it got, all things were working together for good. Okay, let me add another thought to it. I think what he's saying when he makes these comments is, I was and am in control. I didn't lose control. But he makes the comment that even to this point, that I rise again on the third day, I'm in total charge. I'm in total control. You guys think that my body is stolen? Nope. It's all in my plan. You think that the enemy has defeated me? Nope, it's all in my plan. I have this whole scoped out. It's working in my timetable by my clock, not by your clock, not by your watch. It's working the way I want. I am not all of a sudden working on the fly. Oh, let's figure out here. Let's figure out there. Oh, this happened. I have a plan. I have a design. I'm in control. I'm alive. 
I am not defeated. In our trials, in our difficulties, we still have a risen Christ on the throne. He is still in charge. He is working by design. He is in total control. As I've already quoted and you finished in, all things work together for good to them that love Christ Jesus. God has not made a mistake. God is not going by the seat of his pants, making things up as he's going. He knows where he's going. He has predestinated you and me to be conformed to the image of his son. When we get born again, he has this plan in our life that is all in working and all the details. Though we have choice, the, base, the basic bulk of this plan is to bring us to a point where we are Christ-like. He is not making mistakes. He is not letting things get out of control. No matter how wild Washington may look, no matter how goofy the Middle East may be, no matter how unstable Europe is, no matter how crazy your job becomes, we have a God who is still in control. We have a Lord that we worship this morning that is totally undefeated. I think this is kind of funny. Jesus then says to them, do you have any food? They're kind of wondering. They're doubting. What's going on here? And he says, do you have any food? Now, we know why he asked for that. He wants to prove that he is physically alive. There's been stories written about, and and, and I need to take you back to the time Luke is writing. Luke is writing right around 60 AD, about 30 years after Christ is resurrected. By Luke's days, there's a group of preachers going around that are saying that Jesus didn't physically resurrect. They're called Gnostics. They're saying that Jesus just spiritually resurrected and he was all a spirit. And so Luke is recording details that help us to understand that it was more than just a spirit, that it was his body. That's why Luke says the account. He says, this is my body. You can touch me. And Luke gets very specific. Jesus says, <coughs> you know, give me something to eat. Do you have any food here? And so he takes the food in. Luke is trying to emphasize to his readers this was a real physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't just a spiritual phenomenon. You know, he wasn't a phantom. It was real. But I think what's also funny here is Jesus, Jesus is wanting to eat. When you have a, a distressing moment, now for some of you, that's the way you deal with distress. You binge. You go to the fridge. But for others here, when all of a sudden you have a distressing moment, what happens to your appetite? It usually, it leaves. Usually when we have crises, we don't want to eat. By Jesus saying, I'm going to eat something to a bunch of men who are kind of just real fidgety at this moment, he sits down, he starts eating. What does that tell you about Jesus? He's not upset. He's willing just to sit down and let's have a meal. Let's just come and come, guys. Let's do the normal things. He is total peace and control, undefeated Jesus in the middle of the greatest trials he faced. So if he is undefeated in the greatest trials he faced, he is undefeated in the trials we face. Our Jesus is never defeated in any way, in any shape, no matter how bad the circumstances go for you and me. Let me give you another truism that stands out in this passage. Number two is this. Jesus, God, is not done with his disciples no matter how poorly they did. No matter how poorly they responded to him. Here's these guys that they have not had a really good week. In fact, the last few days have been some really bad hair days. 
Here's these guys from their perspective. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what do they remember out of the Garden of Gethsemane? Probably, by the way, this is probably true of us, we usually remember the negatives more than we remember the positives. We remember the trouble we got into. We remember the spankings we got. We remember the bad things that happened in friendships and things, and we, we retain some of the good, but we remember more of the lousy meals than the good meals. You know, when we go to restaurants or places like that, we remember those things. They remember some bad moments. On Friday, or Thursday night, they remember, Thursday night after the uh, Lord's Supper, they remember going out and Jesus saying, pray with me, pray with me, pray with me. And they fell asleep. And he comes back and says, pray with me. And they fell asleep again. And he comes back and he says, pray with me. And they fell asleep again. And they remember they blew it. They really blew it. They should have been praying when he told them to pray. And then he gets arrested and they remember that when he got arrested, they remember that they had a moment where Peter was bravado Peter and came out and took that, took that switchblade and cut off Malchus's ear. But then when Jesus says stop fighting, they remember looking at the cohort of four to six hundred men and they remember the terror that overcame them and they all ran away. They remember running. They remember that when it comes to Jesus being on trial, they remember the denial. They remember when it comes to the cross that the majority of them, there's no mention of them being there. They weren't there when their best friend passed away. You know how important that is to sometimes to us. Being with that person when they're in their last moments. Well, they weren't. And so from their perspective, we have blown it big time. Kind of like the way you and I feel. When we look at the moments that we haven't followed through like we said we would. We promised at camp that we were going to be more faithful witnesses at school, and we didn't. We said at a family conference we were going to be more consistent with, with the destruction of our children and with giving them Bible on a daily basis, and it hasn't happened. We know that we said at some services we are really going to work at our marriage, and we're going to be more loving and forgiving, and yeah. We remember how we promised we were going to pray more faithfully and fast and we remember those things that we didn't do. And we come to church and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to put myself out there anymore because I haven't followed through. What must God think of me? What does God think of you and me? What does God do when he walks into the room and sees these disciples? I find what's amazing is what Jesus says to them when he first walks in. And he says it twice. Peace be unto you. Now, the reason it strikes me is the absence of what he could, could have said. You know, the first thing he says is, peace be unto you. The first thing I would have said to my kids when I would have pulled into the driveway and their bikes were there would have been, again? Again you guys did this? Or what's the first thing you say to your kids when all of a sudden on Thursday night they announce at about 9 o'clock, oh, by the way, I have this project due tomorrow. You give them a tongue lashing. You, you just respond by saying, come on, this happens time and time again, and you rehearse some of the things that they've done where they've blown it. Jesus doesn't do that. The absence of a tongue lashing that could have been there, that surprises me. Instead, he says unto them, peace be unto you. Now, it makes more sense when we understand it's more than just, hi guys, okay? It, it, it's more the words that he uses when he walks in. Let me see if I can illustrate. 
You all know that back in 490, they started the marathon. That's where it all came from. That it's the battle of the marathon, and so the, the Greeks and the Persians are in, fight, in fighting, and Pheidippides, he is a runner. He's part of the army. They've defeated the Persians, but the Persians in their retreat have gone to their ships and now are making, making plans to sail towards Athens, and in recourse of being beaten on a land battle, they're going to come and attack Athens. So uh, Pheidippides, he's going to run the 26 miles, get to, get to Athens to, war, to let them know they had victory, but also to warn them that the Persians are going to come in the back door and to get ready. After he runs that distance, he breaks in, and you know the story, he comes in and he calls out, Kairath! Now in the original language, what that means is victory. It means that we've won. And then he passes out and he dies. The, Jew, the Greeks, in a period of the years that followed, took that greeting, Kairith, and they transformed it to meaning conquered or, or victory into a greeting of great news. Kairith, joy, peace. That's what the word that Jesus is using here when he walks into the room. He's using a word that in the Aramaic would be shalom. That walks in and it's a word of peace, joy, blessing, good news. It's one where you are, where you are saying to the person, you are saying, I want God to favor you. I want, I want you to enjoy the goodness of God. That's what he says to them who have failed him. He walks in and says, God's blessings be upon you. No. No, in modern language, if somebody had failed, failed us, we would be tempted, maybe not say it, but we'd be tempted, not God's blessings upon you, but just the opposite. And Jesus speaks to them. And not only does he say it once, but we read in John, he says it twice. He calls out and says, God's blessings be upon you, as they hesitate and they're trying to put this all together. He's not done with them. He speaks peaceably to them with joy, and then he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In fact, in Luke we read, you are going to be witnesses in verse 48. These guys who have failed to even stand next to him, he says, I'm going to give you the task that you're going to carry out my message. You're going to be the bearers. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave everything with you. It's up to you to keep the Christian internet going. You've got to keep it going. I, I, my hands off. It's, so, it's, it's in your hands. He's giving them this phenomenal task that he's trusting these not so phenomenal people with. And not only do they have to give the good news, he says, you've got to go all over the world. You've got to tell everyone. You were afraid to say to that little girl in the, in the courtyard that you were my disciple. But you've got to tell everyone now. You who have blown it, I'm giving you the biggest job in all eternity. Here it is, guys. Be witnesses. Talk about confidence and trust. Talk about forgiveness and loyalty to people who have failed you. That's Christ. To these guys and to us. That he would give us a message like that. Now think about the message. Let's see if we can pretend it this way. Let's just think... You go in your basement this week and you find a spring of water in your basement. Okay? It's not supposed to be there, but all of a sudden it shows up in the corner of your basement. You're not real happy with it until you touch the water to just, you want to see, you know, let's smell it. Let's find out what kind of water it is. And when you touch the water, all of a sudden your hands feel baby soft. Whoa, the calluses are gone. The dirt is gone. Yeah. 
And then you stand up and you're going, whew, this is amazing. And where I rub that water on my head, hair shows up. <laughs> it's renewed. <laughs> it's flowing. You get excited because this water, okay? You take the water and you rub it where there's arthritis, it's gone. You rub the water and if there's any acne or any, any skin problem, it's, it's gone. You drink the water and you cancel all your doctor appointments. Not needed. You tell a few people. The rest you're going to charge. <laughs> really? You found a fountain of youth. You're going to just keep it? You're going to hoard it? Jesus says, I am giving you men the fountain of youth that will provide total forgiveness and renewal spiritually to everyone in the world. I want you to tell people about it. I want you to give it away freely. And so these guys have this great news, this revival, this regenerating news, this, this, this message that can just revitalize lives and homes and provide eternal life. Jesus put it in their basement. Guys that had blown it, he lets them have it. And he says, put it in your satchels, put it in your canteens, and spread it throughout the world. He trusts them. He gives them what they, this phenomenal news that, that we go out and we teach and preach. He's not done with these guys. He's not done with them. Peace be unto you. Go and be my way. And then, and then, he, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't desert them. That's your third truth. He doesn't desert them. He's going to leave. That's true. He's going to leave. But he doesn't desert them. He doesn't leave them totally by themselves to do the task. He says, oh, by the way, guys, I'm going to give you this great job with this phenomenal message. Even though you've blown it, I, I'm still trusting you. I'm giving you this news. I still love you. I still care for you. Guys, I, I want you to go out. And when you go out, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you do the task. I'm going to be your, your best friend while you go out and you represent me. Watch this. No eviction. No get rid of me. Talk about eviction. Talk about people being upset with people. Dorothy Thomas, Jacksonville, North Carolina. She's dating a guy, broke off with him. He shows up several weeks later, breaks into her apartment and attacks her. The guy's a big dude. He's a former uh, police officer, former Marine. The police are called, they come, and they shoot him six times. He jumps out the second story window and gets away. He's a big dude. She ends up in the hospital because of the attack. She gets out of the hospital, she goes back to her apartment. There she gets to her apartment door and there's an eviction notice from her landlord. You're being evicted because you disrupted the quietness of the apartment complex. Talk about discouraging. She's in bad health and now she's evicted because somebody else's error. Talk about weird situations. A Rebecca Neely, 70 years old, living in Chicago. She's been in this apartment complex for several years. Never had a problem, even though her heat and her cooling was, you know, had to be adjusted. But it always worked out well until a new manager came in. The new manager's name is Carla Beatty. Carla Beatty is saying, we're not going to adjust the heat. We're not going to adjust the, the uh, air conditioning. So, so uh, Mrs. Neely, she and this Carla, they have a few words. And she's upset because now days that go by and the heat is on when it shouldn't be and the cool is on when it shouldn't be. And, and she's not the only tenant. 
But all of a sudden, one day she gets a knock at the door. She opens the door, and there's some paramedics. And they say, we have a court order here to take you to a sanitarium. And she said, what? And they said, we have a court order that you're mentally incompetent, and we're taking you to a sanitarium. Well, she said, just a minute, just a minute. She called her lawyer. Her lawyer showed up within minutes. The police were there. And they found out that what had happened is the landlord had filed the paperwork saying she was mentally incompetent and wanted her removed from the apartment to an insane asylum. She wasn't the only tenant. Every other tenant in that building who disagreed with the new manager, they also had such court documents filed against them. Talk about a great landlord, huh? Here, I'll give you a true story. Damon Hopkins out of Philadelphia, he's living down there in the early 2000s, and um, his landlord raised the rent. By $100 a month. So it went up from $300 to $400 a month. Isn't that outrageous? So the landlord wants, it, wants him to pay. He says, I'm not paying. I think you're trying to get me to, to leave. And you're trying to force me out. I'm not going to pay. You don't have reason to raise the rent. Well, the landlord then responded by saying, eviction notice. Got the documents. Had them delivered. That he was going, he was going to be evicted. Because he wouldn't pay the new rate. He still wouldn't leave. He got into a verbal argument with the landlord, and the landlord took out a gun and shot him. Okay, dangerous landlord. Okay, he wasn't killed, but he was just wounded. The landlord was his mother. (laughs) Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't evict us? Doesn't treat us the way that those people treat? He doesn't, he doesn't, when we do things that are disappointing, he doesn't desert us. He doesn't evict us. What he does is he gives us jobs to do. And then on top of that, he gives us everything we need to do the job. He says, guys, tell you what, this is a big job. You're going to need divine help. So he breathes on them moment, so they momentarily get the Holy Spirit for these next few days. But then he predicts that come Pentecost, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you and he's going to indwell you and be with you forever. Now think about this. This Holy Spirit that he is sending to them, this Holy Spirit is amazing. This Holy Spirit is Jesus' partner in the ministry. It is Jesus', uh, and, and every term I use is going to be is going to fail. It's his other self. It's part of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I am going to have my spirit indwell and stay within you. This is how much I have confidence in you. This is how much I trust you. And this is in the trials that you're going to face. Just keep this in mind. Keep this in mind that, that you know, I, I, I'm not deserting you. In fact, I'm giving you my spirit who's going to be with you. And then on top of that, he adds more to it. He says, whatever you say, I'm going to back you up. If you speak the truth, I will back you up. In John 20, we read the words that he said that whosoever sins, you remit, they're going to be remitted. Whosoever sins that you, for, you don't forgive, they won't be forgiven. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what this verse means. We understand, we know that some churches have grabbed onto this and said the clergy, because this was said to the apostles, the clergy are representatives of Jesus and they have special power to forgive sins. And so you come and you kneel before me and I, you were to say something and, I, and you were supposed to say, you know, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been so many months since my last confession. I'd respond and then I'd give you absolution and give you some other things to do in order to make sure your sins are forgiven. Is that what this verse is about? That's what it's claimed, is that God gave a special group of men, the apostles, the ability to forgive sins. Let me throw several thoughts at you from the Bible, okay, that are very clear. 
Okay, it didn't mean that at all. Because we know that very clearly in Jesus' ministry, it was declared, like in Mark chapter 2, when he was doing a healing, that only God can forgive sins. No man has the ability to provide eternal forgiveness. It is God and God alone. And so even Jesus' enemies say, how can you forgive this man? Only God can forgive. And he backs it up. That's true. That's true. Only God can forgive sins. In fact, I don't need to go to some priest you don't need to come to a preacher to confess your sins. Why is that? Because you are your own priest. The Bible talks about the priesthood of the believer. That is this concept that he calls those of us who are born again, we are all priests. That is, we can all go to God. We don't need an intermediary, somebody representing us like a human priest. We have Jesus Christ. He tore that veil open. He says, you can come now directly to God, any one of us at any time, that we can go and we can pray to the Lord. And he calls us a royal priesthood. In fact, the statement is in Hebrews encouraging us where it says, we should have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, having confidence because our conscience is sprinkled by the blood of Christ. We are able to go in at any moment and confess our sins. He is faithful and just. I don't need to go through a priest. I don't need to go through Mary. I don't need to go through any other saint. You and I are saints that have the privilege as priests to be able to go to him if we're born again. Oh, by the way, in that room there was more than the apostles. If you go back to Luke 24, there was additional people in the room. So to say it was given to just to those special men, this was spoken to a variety of people. More people than the apostles. As well, let me remind you that in the Bible, the apostles themselves, as they wrote scripture, they never ever claimed that they had the power and the authority to forgive sins. In fact, when they wrote, and when they were preaching, this is Peter. Peter speaking, he says that there is through his name whoever believes in him shall receive a remission or forgiveness of sins. It's not through some other person. It's through Christ and Christ alone. In fact, the word that Jesus uses in John chapter 20 when he's speaking, he makes that statement and he says, whoever sins, you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins, you are retained, they are retained. Those are what we call perfect verbs. What it means is this, if we understand whosoever sins you forgive, they were already forgiven. Whosoever sins you don't forgive, they have already not been forgiven. It's not dependent upon the men. The men are just simply declaring what's already been done. What he's saying by saying, by giving these men this authority was to speak on behalf of God not to actually do the forgiveness, but to be able to say based on the promises of God, if you've confessed and ask Christ to forgive. If you've repented, your sins have been forgiven. If you refuse to confess and repent, your sins are not forgiven. These men are not given the ability to dispense forgiveness. They are given the ability to just declare it. And so what he's telling us in this passage is this thought, that there is forgiveness for anyone whosoever sins. It can be for any sin. It can be for any number of your sins. There is forgiveness. Preachers, disciples, believers can go out and to say to anyone, as long as you repent, there is going to be forgiveness. But if you don't repent, your sins are not forgiven. If you insist on trying to get rid of your sins by your good works, your good looks, your good deeds, your good citizenship, your good family, your sins are not forgiven. 
Or should we add to it this? If you refuse to forgive others of their sins, your sins are not forgiven. That is not because we have that authority to be able to, to, to impose that. We only have the authority to announce it because this is what God said. God said if you confess, you can be forgiven. If you refuse to forgive, you're not forgiven. Oh, and that happens all the time. There are situations where you may have somebody come forward, go out the side door, go and talk with somebody, and afterwards they've prayed. They've asked Christ to forgive them, and they look and they say, did he hear me? Based on the words of Jesus, I can declare to you that your sins have been forgiven because you called upon Christ. So that's what he's talking about. He's telling the disciples, when you go out to preach, I'm backing you up. As you preach, you can tell them the truth, and it's coming from me. And what you say is going to be declarative with authority that you're speaking on my behalf. Guys, I'm going to have my spirit go with you. Guys, I'm going to give you that authority to speak. You go out. I'm not deserting you. I'm going with you. I'm not going to be here personally, but I'm going to be here in spirit. I'm going to be here with the authority. No matter how bad it looks, folk, Christ is still with us. He has not deserted us. And when he has gone back to heaven, which we read in the next few verses, look at the, what happens right after that. It says in verse 50, he led them out as far as to Bethany, lifted up his hands, blessed them, and it came to pass while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He goes to heaven where he directs events in our life now. According to Ephesians 1, he is seated in the holy of holies. He is there. Everything is under his authority. He is in control. We read in 1 John 2 that he is our parakletos, our advocate in heaven, praying for us, helping us that when we fall, fail, that he asks God even to continue to forgive us again. He prays for us, intercedes on our behalf. In fact, in from heaven, according to Hebrews 4, that when we call upon him, he is a high priest who understands and he comes to succor us, that is to come and to help us in the middle of our trials. He doesn't desert us. He's gone, but it doesn't mean he's left us. He's here, he's helping, and we need that help. We are like some believers, like Dave Dravecki, that some of you remember his story. Back in the 80s, he was a pitcher, pitched in the World Series. But then the following year, he all of a sudden had some soreness in his arm. They found out that there was a cancerous tumor there within the muscle, so they did the surgery, took it out. Next season, he comes back, and he's got the comeback player of the year. Because he's able to just with that pitching arm come back and be able to pitch. But then, during the middle of a game, the following season, while he, after he pitched from the mound, all of a sudden they could hear the snap through the stadium. His arm broke. They ended up researching, finding the cancer had spread. They have to amputate his arm. Now, Dravecki had gotten born again when he was in the minor leagues. He's a believer. But his whole life has been dreaming to play baseball. Here he is, a believer, trusting the Lord, thanking the Lord for these great opportunities. All of a sudden, he's got cancer. All of a sudden, his career has ended. He is battling. He is struggling. He is uncertain what to do. He writes a book, reveals his own personal struggles, and, and it wins Christian awards because it's, I need to trust the Lord, but he still doesn't know where God is leading. A couple years later, he starts a ministry out west, it's called the Outreach of Hope, where he is personally dealing with cancer victims. And as his life goes on, he says it's amazing how God took him and put him in a place that he didn't expect to be, but where he can minister to people and he can see the plan and the hand of God that God did not desert him in the middle of his difficulties. That even though he had not been the perfect believer, Jesus Christ still entrusted with him with ministry. That here he was, 
He is still being treated and talked to by Jesus with kindness, with grace, with some, with encouragement. This is the God that our God is still in control. Our God is still gracious to us. Our God is still going to help us, use us, and take us through the horrible times. That's what the disciples needed to know. That's what they needed at that very moment to realize that he's not defeated, that he's not done with them, that he has not deserted them, but he is there helping them. That transformed them. It carried them through. They were able to go on with their ministries and to have some great impact. This is the God we worship this morning. The God who is the same as he was to these disciples. The one who is assisting them and helping them. The one who has not deserted them, but the God that you're going to walk out and you're going to think about and you're going to worship this week. You're going to serve. He is the one who is still with you and in control and still, still is the God who cares for you. That means to you and me these thoughts. It means that no matter what our circumstances, no matter how bad the week gets, the month gets, the year gets, no matter how bad, we can still have joy. Our God is not defeated. Our God is not done with us. Our God has not deserted us. We can still have joy. But what I think it does more than that is it calls us to the same action as the disciples at the end of this chapter. Watch what they do. At the end of the chapter, look what it says. It says, as Jesus parted, verse 52, they what? They worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. Look at verse 53. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. With such a generous God, we should be generous with our worship. We should be praising Him. We should be worshiping Him. We should be recalling that our God is a faithful God. That no matter what happens, He's there. He's with us. That His faithfulness is absolutely phenomenal. It is amazing. It is great. And we ought to worship Him from the depths of our heart.